sermon text tonight is Genesis 3, as we consider the fall of man. We will also be using for our catechism lesson the next two questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, so numbers 12 and 13. That can be found on page 870 in the back of the red hymnal, page 870. We'll read the answers together after we read God's word. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, 
he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God endures forever. Then question 12 of the Shorter Catechism, page 870 in the Red Hymnal. We will consider questions 12 and 13. Let's read the answers together. Question 12. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. This morning we considered the battle for the real estate of our hearts, so to speak, as we considered uh, our fallen nature and the principle of sin that that works uh, within us that we need to be aware of and understand that sin in concert with uh, the devil and the, the evil in this world are working to draw us away from the truth and point our affections upon things that are not glorifying to God and Sin can then be worked out in our lives from there if it is allowed. There is a day that rages, or there is a battle that rages day after day in the inner man. We need to understand how that battle is fought. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit to keep us in truth and to fill us with proper affections, rightly ordered loves, to love God first and foremost, to love God in Jesus Christ, and then allow things to fall into place. Tonight we are considering how we came to be in this fallen state. This is man uh, in his original, created as originally righteous before he has fallen in the Garden of Eden. And understanding this is actually helpful for how we fight the battle we now fight. Adam and Eve, uncorrupted, were created not as neutral. We talked about that last time we considered uh, the, the catechism. They weren't created as neutral, but they were upright. They were righteous. They were not um, sinful at all, and they were not neutral. But they fell from their estate of righteousness. So their temptation was unlike ours. This is a, a kind of temptation here in Genesis 3 that we'll never know because it was only external forces that were acting upon them. There was not a corruption that was working inside of them. We need to keep that in mind. Right? God didn't create Adam and Eve with, with any, uh, anything that was defective or anything that would have internally drawn them to sin. They were upright. So this is a willful rebellion against God. And we understand uh, from that the hopelessness that we have in trying to establish our own righteousness before God. If Adam and Eve fail as upright before God, then how can anyone who is standing in fallen Adam create their own righteousness before God on their own? And we learn how much we should rejoice that God 
has poured his grace upon us. We're thinking about here the covenant of life or the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden as it's sometimes called. But we'll also consider the covenant of grace, how God allows us to commune with him in his grace. And he welcomes us to himself in mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Imagine if our marriage vows went something like this. I, I take you to be my wedded wife or my wedded husband, to love you and to keep you. But if you ever do anything wrong, if you do anything that upsets me or just sin, even in, even in a light way, if you ever mess up at all, this marriage will be null and void. No one would ever go into a marriage that's like that because it's impossible to keep that vow. The thing about marriage vows is that they endure through mistakes made and through hurts. Because we are fallen, God has, in a sense, accommodated to that fallenness to say that he will still commune with us and he communes with us in his grace. And so he makes a covenant of grace so that we can be welcomed into fellowship with him. But first, in the Garden of Eden, we consider that, as the the Catechism calls it, the covenant of life. It's called the covenant of life because had Adam obeyed, he would have inherited true and eternal and unchangeable life. His situation was changeable, but if he had obeyed, if he had stood the test according to God's appointment, then he would have inherited life. We see that covenant made in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We read there, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Contained within this, this covenantal arrangement between God and man, in which God is ruler and king and lawgiver, And man is subject. Contained within this is an explicit promise of punishment and an implicit promise of life. God says, if you disobey, you will surely die. And implicit in that is, if you obey, you will experience the blessings of life. We understand, as we read elsewhere in Scripture, places like Romans 5, that Adam here is not acting only for himself. He's a, he's a representative. We understand that. We have a representative government here in our land. We elect people. It's not a pure democracy. We elect people that we believe are going to carry out or enact or write policies and legislation that are close to our preferences. So uh, a district here in the United States, the second con- congressional district, I believe, in Illinois, We elect someone who goes to Congress and then represents our interests or the interests of the majority of the people who live within our district. Adam here in the Garden of Eden is acting as a representative for all mankind, for all of the human race. He is a public person, a representative, a federal head. In his failure, we read later on in Romans 5 that his one condemnation, his one sin leads to condemnation for all men. Let's think about the nature of Adam's freedom. He is created with a will. The catechism tells us that it is a, a free will. It's free in a certain sense. And Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what we need to understand is they are as free as any human being ever could be. 
when we read about this covenant that God makes with them, you may eat of all the trees in the Garden of Eden, but this one tree, you cannot eat of it. What is it about the human heart that causes us to focus so centrally on the one prohibition that God gives to Adam and Eve? What is it about seeing a sign on the wall that says wet paint that makes a a little child want to go up and touch it? No offense if any of you adults still feel the the need to go touch a, a, a wall when it says wet paint. I feel that urge too. You see wet paint and you want to go out and touch it. Is it really wet? Don't, you can, you, you, don't touch this wall and we want to touch it. The covenant of life that God makes with Adam and Eve is not meant to be read as a constricting commandment. God wasn't saying, uh, here is this thing that you cannot do. He says, you, you may eat freely of all of the trees in the Garden of Eden. And that's the way that human freedom works. You see, too often we're tempted to think that human freedom is only experienced when there are no boundaries at all. When we can go wherever we want and do whatever we want. I put it this way, you've all heard it put, me, put it this way before, that some people think that freedom is the opportunity to say yes to anything. But that's not really what true freedom is. True freedom is the ability to say no. If you can't say no then you aren't free. In the Garden of Eden, God created these boundaries around the life that Adam and Eve were to make. And that was true freedom because the only way that human beings can be free is to also exist under the lordship of God. We'll talk about that again in a couple of minutes. What do we learn from this covenant? Well, this covenant that God makes with man in Eden is based upon man's work. The punishment and the blessing will pour forth based on how Adam responds, on how Adam obeys or disobeys. It's based upon man's working because uh, God did not need to give Adam any kind of special grace in order to fulfill his duty. Everything that was there for him to obey was present in Adam as created righteously. The basis of this arrangement in the Garden of Eden was strictly justice. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Because of that, it's, it's a, there are different things about how this arrangement is understood between God and man. For instance, assurance was not present for Adam in the Garden of Eden. We'll talk about this a little bit later too. What is the the great blessing of knowing God in Christ, of knowing him in his grace? It's that we have a mediator, we have a savior who has acted on our behalf, who has bore the wrath of God for us, who intercedes for us, and thus as we trust in him, we can be assured that our standing before God will never be taken away. It will never be changed. We can always be assured of eternal life. Adam in the Garden of Eden His status was changeable. There was something about it that could be changed. He stood as righteous before God. But if he disobeyed, he would lose that righteousness. Also, in the Garden of Eden, this arrangement could itself offer no redemption. In order for God to redeem mankind, he needs to uh, promise something new. And that's what we know as the covenant of grace. No assurance and no redemption, strict justice, but given everything he needs to obey. 
As we consider Genesis 3, what are some things, we can't go through the entire chapter and meticulously look at everything, but as we consider the catechism in light of Genesis 3, what are some things that we can observe? Well, we can observe how was it that humanity was first drawn into sinfulness? How did we lose that original righteousness? What were some of Eve's and Adam's mistakes? The first thing that we see is they simply allowed the devil to speak. They allowed the serpent to come. They gave him an audience. They gave him time. They listened to him. They treated him as somewhat reasonable and rational. And they were influenced by him. It causes us to say, why did Eve give him a chance at all? Why didn't Adam banish the serpent? Why didn't Adam kill the serpent? But then when we consider those things, what do we realize for our own lives? Too often, what do we do? We give our sinful desires an audience. We talked about that this morning. We massage those evil desires within us. We take too much pleasure in them. We do not do enough to immediately kill sin and stop it at the door and keep it outside of our hearts. But they listen to the devil as they give him an audience and he comes to them and makes a case. There's a a changing or a twisting of God's word. We read in in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. A couple of things to notice There, what Eve says, she of course adds that she's not allowed to touch it. And she casts this in in a a much more constrictive way, doesn't she? You go back to chapter 2 and God says, you may eat freely from all of the trees in the garden. In other words, he's saying, I give you this blessing to go throughout the garden to enjoy my creation. To enjoy what it is that may give you nourishment and sustenance. You may eat freely but there is one tree that I have reserved and from which you may not eat and Eve casts this in a in a constrictive way and when we begin ourselves to think of God's commandments that way when we begin to think of God's law that way that it's a constrictive thing it's it's something to take away our joy it's something to take away our freedom. We'll never understand it the way that it needs to be understood. See, life is found in God's law. What is the man like who studies and meditates on God's law? He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Life flows through him and he knows life as it was meant to be. Living in light of God's commandments for there we find life. We read a lot of this in places like Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. The psalmist there sees it as a life-giving thing that God's commands give us life. But Eve changed God's word and she viewed it a different way. Next, we see something of an acting in isolation. Adam and Eve are both there to some degree. We don't know how close Adam was in this interaction with Eve and the serpent. 
But we notice that they don't deliberate together about this. There's no speaking that's recorded in Genesis 3. What should we do? Is this, is this a step that we ought to take? We see that as certainly foolish in its own way. But then, of course, too often we're caught in the same, a similar kind of foolishness. Right? We begin to be caught up in a sin. And instead of turning to each other for help, we turn inward. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's part of our calling. How do we help one another on to stir one another up towards love and good works? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Eve was convinced of something in her own mind, and she eats, doesn't deliberate with Adam. Adam is likewise convinced of something in his mind, and he follows. We also see in Genesis 3, we talked about this this morning, God is not the author of sin. God is not at fault in Genesis 3. What's the way that the narrative is presented to us? God comes later on. Now, of course, he is there. And, of course, he knows what is happening. He knows all things. But the way that the account is given to us is that Adam and Eve are acting according to their own will. He makes them recount it. He makes them recount what happened and to admit it, to admit to God what they have done. The Lord God says to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Have you done this? Have you decided to break the commandment I gave you? See, God is not at fault. Being left to the freedom of their own will, they sinned against God. We also see, even though this is man and woman in their unfallen state, we also see many of the schemes of the devil. How does the serpent act? What does he do? Does he come and does he say, uh, God, the God who created you and who is uh, Lord and King over you, he's, he's really awful and you need to do whatever you can to rebel against him. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't present bold lies, direct lies. He's a schemer and he lies in these deceptive and conniving ways. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what he really said? Well, oh no, that's, that's not what he said, right? It's, the, it's these kinds of schemes that can make us feel comfortable around the idea of sin or comfortable around sin itself. As the devil so often does with us that we need to be aware of his schemes, aware of what he does, What he does here with Adam and Eve, he presents the bait and he hides the hook. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at this, look at the good that will come from this. And of course, hiding the hook. And the hook was sin and death will enter the world and we will be cursed henceforth. He presents 
being autonomous as desirable. What does autonomous mean? Being a law unto ourselves. He says, take the onus upon yourselves. You decide what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. You be the one to decide that for yourself. For when you do it, you will be like God. He presents it as God-likeness. You exercise authority because that's what God does. And since God does it, you should want to do it too. Thomas Watson says this. As King Pharaoh made Joseph chief ruler of his kingdom and gave him a ring off his finger and a chain of gold, but he said, you must not touch his throne. In like manner, God dealt with Adam. He gave him a sparkling jewel, knowledge, and put upon him the garment of original righteousness. Only said he, touch not the tree of knowledge, for that is aspiring after omniscience. We can never be God, and so we can never be the lawgiver. And that's exactly how the serpent presented it to Adam and Eve. You become a law unto yourselves. And how often we too are led into that same lie, convinced that we should become our own lawgiver and lawmakers. He underplays the blessings that God has already given to them. Desires are often fueled, sinful desires are often fueled within us by a lack of gratitude, thinking that what we have is not fair or it's not enough or it's insufficient. Or he downplays the blessings that, he has, that God had given to them. And then, of course, he lies about the consequences. You, you will not surely die. But, of course, death was introduced at that very moment. So the situation was different. Man was not fallen. Man was not corrupted. But a lot of the schemes are the same. And in ways that we can't fully understand. Adam and Eve are taken with this presentation by the serpent. They are taken in through these external forces. They see that it's desirable and they eat. They break the covenant and God comes and he curses them. Yet at the same time, he makes a promise. This was a, an arrangement of strict justice. You obey and you will live. You disobey and you will die. But within that, in Genesis 3, he promises that there will be another. The seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And that becomes the central hope for all the human race until Jesus Christ is born. That there will be one to come and to redeem. The only way that human history would have continued from that point on was if God made that very promise. We've all been, perhaps many of us anyways, have been in situations where we're kind of talking about these things with other Christians in a Bible study or something. And we ask, or someone asks, why didn't God just sort of scrap the whole program and start over? Well, the reason, the only reason that human history continues from that point on is for Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ becomes that central figure for all of human history. The covenant of life being broken, life is still yet allowed to continue an eternal life given because of this Redeemer who is promised. So let's make a couple of applications as we bring this to a close. The first is this. Consider this 
covenant arrangement in the Garden of Eden, we must be in wonder at the condescension and the goodness of God. Thomas Watson once again says this. He says, Man was placed in the garden of God, which for the pleasure of it was called paradise. He had his choice of all the trees, one only accepted. He had all kinds of precious stones and pure metals, rich cedars. He was a king upon his throne, and all the creation obeyed him. As in Joseph's dream, all his brethren's sheaves bowed to his. Man in innocence had all kinds of pleasure that might ravish his senses with delight. Paradise was not more adorned with fruit than Adam's soul was with grace. His point is this. This wasn't God acting in forgiveness and mercy and grace, but nevertheless, God condescended to man to give him all of these things that we didn't deserve, all of these wonderful blessings. We did nothing to deserve these things, and so we say that God is great and God is wonderful for creating us as man, as men and women. Secondly, we see that if Adam fell, it becomes completely futile for us to try to stand on our own, for us to try to create our own righteousness before God. If Adam failed, the lesson we need to learn is that we will always fail as well. Fallen and corrupted, with a principle of sin that's always working in us. For those of us who know God and Jesus Christ, again, it doesn't reign over us, but it remains within us. And because of that, everything that we do will only be partially correct. All that we do will be in some ways tainted with sin, and so it becomes futile to try to stand before God on our own. This, in many ways, is the occasion of the book of Galatians. And Paul is pleading with the Christians there. What are you doing? Why are you returning to this law-based arrangement thinking that you can establish your own righteousness before God? Oh, foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing With faith, he's saying, why? Having heard the message of grace and forgiveness in Christ and the freedom that he gives to us through his work, why would you begin to conceive of your relationship with God as being on the foundation of your own works? It's complete foolishness. He'll go on to say, just merely a few verses later, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Our hopes of being justified before God on the basis of our works, that was done for good in the Garden of Eden. No more can that be achieved. So we need to see how futile it is to try to stand on our own before God in our own works. And then when we realize that, what do we need to see? We need to see the blessedness of God's grace. We need to see the wonder of God's grace. How does God welcome us into fellowship with himself? He does it through his grace. 
We see in Psalm 103, we hear in Psalm 103, the God who loves us in his grace. says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That is the promise of a covenant of grace. The covenant of life, as we, as we spoke about, was strict justice. Do this and live. Obey and you will live. Disobey and you will be cursed. But because of the promise that God made in Genesis 3 of a redeemer, he says, I will deal with my people on the basis of grace. And the promise is that God does not deal with us according to our sins. Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We need to understand that uh, we relate to God, we know him in this covenant of grace, and that is an eternal an immensely blessed thing because he welcomes us to himself through his forgiveness and then he gives us power to obey. He furnishes us with the power to obey his commandments. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. God welcomes you to himself by his grace and then he gives you power to obey the law and to walk, to glorify him. Walk by the spirit, Paul says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, You are not under the law. He gives us his spirit by his grace for the power to obey. And then finally, we have the the promise that uh, grace is given to us so that we can commune with God. He gives us the power to obey through the Holy Spirit. And then we have the abiding promise that we see in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that summarizes the way that we need to think about service to God. The gospel is so that we would not sin. Because God has welcomed us to himself in his grace. And he's given us this this unchangeable standing before him in his grace. a, A perfect mediator who lived and died for you. And who won salvation for you. And a spirit that has been given to you to comfort and to teach and to lead you into all truth. And so John says, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. You see how it's so unlike what Adam experienced in the Garden of Eden. If we sin, as we do so in in genuinely seeking to serve our Father, genuinely seeking to glorify Him... We're all going to stumble in many ways. And so we have that abiding promise. If you do sin, you have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is the comfort of grace. And that is the comfort of living before the face of God in a covenant of grace. And so we stand by faith in the strength 
of Christ. That's why Paul says, everything is loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If we know Christ, and if we have uh, trusted in him and his work, everything else might as well be rubbish. For we have found the treasure of our souls. We have found the one thing that we can always hold on to in this world, to know that our God, creator God, is for us, and he sustains us, and he will keep us until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will learn uh, to live by grace, to live in the light of grace. We thank you for this wonderful, wonderful uh, covenant that you have made with us. We're reminded of its blessedness as we think about the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against you, and we are in many ways, reminded of how awful sin is, how terrible it is. And, uh, and yet we are so thankful that you are a God who abounds in steadfast love. So teach us to count our days, to look to your truth, to always live and stand in this grace into which you have welcomed us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.